Welcome to It's Not So Black and White, a podcast where we explore difficult topics with a desire to understand why we think and feel the way we do. I'm your host, Coach John McLernan, and each episode I bring you a guest who brings a challenging topic for us to shine a light on. This podcast is also broadcast live on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. So on whatever platform you follow myself, Coach John McLernan, you have the opportunity to participate in this discussion during the live stream. We encourage your participation both by commenting and asking questions. This podcast is about exploring the human experience behind the ideas with compassion and critical thinking. So let's dive in. All right. Welcome back to another episode of It's Not So Black and White. We're calling this one a solo cast with a guest. (laughs) Sounds good to me. Because I'm the solo member of my cast (laughs) and I have a guest. So uh, now for those who are listening, you can't see, but Sal here is wearing a shirt that says Meninist. Meninist. I've had this since I was a, since I was a sophomore. Okay. Sophomore in high school. Yep. Sophomore in high school. That would be be, like grade 11. So we'll be putting it back to, no, that's actually grade 10. That'll be 10. Yeah. Okay. Well, we should, we should introduce you anyways, uh, Sal. So actually I'm going to, I'm going to flip it over to you and let you introduce yourself. And uh, then we're going to talk some cancer culture and opioids. So. Sounds good to me. So. Everybody, I'm Sal Asante. I am from New Jersey, um, United States, the good old red, white, and blue. I am 22 years old, young fella. I've written a book, ebook with my father about landscaping. That's kind of my day job. And other than that, I just like to create stuff. That's about it. So you've already you've already written one book, and uh, so yes. you, could, you can you can uh, claim published author. Can you can you give yourself uh, what's it like bestseller status or anything like that? Yeah, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like anybody who writes a book these days can say, "Hey, bestseller." I'm like, bestseller, what? Yeah, exactly. You make it to the, so, somewhere on some chart on some you know book website somewhere. Uh, Wouldn't yeah, feel good you... about myself. Yeah, I'm number one on Gardens of the World. Number one. <laughs> that's my company that's it <laughs> there we go yeah yeah so tonight we're talking um cancel culture and opioids and i think it's really interesting to hear this from the perspective of a young individual because i'm a sprightly 40 year old and so i'm i'm almost twice your age yeah uh, close yeah close yeah but uh so you know and when i grew up we didn't have like the internet in the same way we had like you know a dial up um if it was mm-hmm. working that day and if exactly. somebody picked up the phone it would I barely interrupt. caught the tail end of that when I was young. Okay, you got just like the, the, the tiniest little piece of that. I got to hear the so, complaints. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and we had Game Boys with like gray monochrome like dot matrix games mm-hmm. like Tetris and Super Mario. Uh, so, you know, nowadays the world is totally different. I didn't even get my first cell phone until I was... 26 i want to say wow. didn't get my first th- well i was a holdout though I'll, to be fair like i could have had one sooner but i just opted not to gotcha and i uh, didn't get my first uh smartphone until i was 32 so uh, there we go now Held that i've just established long. that i'm like a tech dinosaur in this conversation uh it's great it's great to hear a young person's perspective on this and you know opioids Absolutely. weren't really a thing when i was a teenager in high school and, and going to yeah. university and stuff like that. that that wasn't really a thing either and now that we're, we're struck with like this crisis where uh, overdoses are happening at like sort of an unprecedented scale. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm kind of curious from, from your perspective, really, you know, what, what do you see about this? And, and from a young person's perspective, why this might be happening? Well, I will tell you this, it gets, it gets actually pretty personal. Um, had a unexpected, um, you know, you don't expect a nice, well-flowing family to have uh, an addict, but, um, it happens and, uh, it hit home close, but also so many people around me, um, even, you know, even classmates getting not necessarily into opioids, but into, you know, heavy into Adderall, heavy into um, Xanax. Z- Xanax, yeah. And uh, they call yeah. it Zannies. Is that what the kids call it these days? Zannies, bars, you know, everyone was in, not everyone, but a lot of kids were into them. And it, it really turned me away from the scene, turned me away from going to parties, turned me away from wanting to go out into that because, you know, I, I wanted to avoid putting any of that stuff close to my body. Yeah. Um, what, what made you hesitate? Just then I'm curious because like, yeah, this, this sounds like something that, okay. Uh, a lot of people or, or like a significant percentage of young people mm. are, are doing this and you look at it and you go, Hey, I'm not so sure about this. Um, I think it comes from a big time conservative background in my family. But then again, I think the biggest thing was from a young age, knowing that I had a family member who was struggling with it. Um, mm, okay. And how badly it was beating them up. Um, it really kind of struck a chord that, Hey, you got, you got to steer clear from that stuff for some pretty obvious reasons. Yeah. So what, what sounds like almost like insane to me is this thought of like a young person who's potentially in the prime of their life mm-hmm. using something like um, Adderall or Xanax, um, 
which are two different two different drugs here, but using those Absolutely. to sort of deal with, uh, I don't know, kind of like their mental health or just the, the daily life, honestly. Yeah, yeah, literally day to day life. What what makes it feel so pressure packed? Um, I think the biggest thing is from, uh, especially from a male perspective, from a young age, you're forced to sit down in a classroom and pay attention. And after a while, um, when when you're you know not performing to standards or or something seems a little off, and all of a sudden you get a recommendation, the first thing usually is Adderall. Um, I saw it, you know, um, I'd say it was close to probably like 10, 15 percent of my my class was on Adderall, and like Oof. that's it. Yeah. And I, I'm not even trying to overestimate or anything. I knew so many people taking it that it was like, I could just go get some if I needed to study for a test or something. And right. uh, that was my only experience with it. And even then I was like, you know, got super dehydrated. I had some, you know, I couldn't sleep after taking it. And, you know, I was just glad because <clears throat> I'm sure that I would classify as having ADHD. I'm glad mm -hmm. I did not actually get diagnosed and get those pills given to me from a young age. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's a rabbit hole here that's sort of like beckoning a little bit. And that is, mm -hmm. you know, sort of pharmaceutical companies trying to get people hooked on their products, legal drugs at a young well, absolutely. age. Well, because that's I, what it goes into the opioid rabbit hole. Right. Because I mean, it's not an accident. Like if you, if you're a prescription drug company, a pharmaceutical company, you make money by selling products. The more people want your products, the more you sell them. And mm -hmm. it, it's, you know, I think about it, it's like this interesting promise, take this pill and your life is going to be better. Don't actually try to improve yourself. Just now, of course, this, this is a, the solution, right? Now that I, I understand and respect that's a very gross oversimplification, but in the same token, there's something about this. I don't think it's a gross oversimplification. Um, cause you pretty much nailed it on the head. In my opinion, when you started saying they have to make money and they start seeing, you know, profits, they start seeing returns as a company. Once you start seeing money rolling in, don't you go and attack that area and try to earn more money? Mm. Right. And unfortunately, it's gotten to a point where like we're at this point kind of killing a lot of the hosts, but it doesn't yeah. seem to matter because the addiction rate keeps going higher. Right. Yeah. And, and so how, how, do, how do young people feel about this? You know, I mean, not the, you know, this you can speak for, you know, every young person across America, yep. let alone the world. But, you know, I don't actually get that much of an opportunity to chat to people 20 years younger than me and go like, yep. What, what are you experiencing in terms of how young people see this and witness, like, are they aware that this sort of level of potential malevolence exists? I got to be honest with you, John. I don't think so. Um, it's not in the mouths of a lot of young people. I can't have this conversation with a lot of young people. Um, and it, I don't think it's because they, they don't want to talk about it. I think they just don't really hear much about it. Um, maybe they don't want to hear a lot about it, but also like, Cause I'm in, I'm from a very, um, I guess you could say high class neighborhood. So to hear like, you know, fentanyl and stuff going around here would be, that would be bonkers, but mm. see the stuff, like I said, so Adderall Xanax, um, and that stuff just leads down. And then, you know, we actually did have a, at least one student did pass away from heroin use. And that mm. was, um, that was two years ago. I actually knew the kid and, yeah. um, yeah, that news when that, when I heard that, that hit me hard, like. You know, I mean, it hit me again where it was like, you better not use this stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think that the young people are really um, actually giving this the attention that it needs. Mm. Well, th there's a lot of things that, that, that are uh, on the horizon to draw us in and distract us. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I was chatting with a client today uh, in my nutrition, nutrition coaching business, and um, she was just talking about how she was sort of drawn in by this Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. And I'm sure talking about that a little bit today. Yeah. I'm, I have no idea why. I mean, like all I know is that this trial exists. I was like, I'm proud to say I have not watched a single episode of the Johnny and Amber show, like whatever, whatever it is that's taking place. I have not watched a single episode of it, but mm -hmm. obviously it's, it's on people's minds. Now, I guess why I shine a light on this is I go, this is what we're getting sucked into. Yeah. Look at this drama over here. You know, someone's life is more interesting than yours. Someone's life is better than yours or someone as a human being, just like you, but either in any case, what it is, it seems to me like it's a distraction from the bigger issues that we're facing. That's what it normally seems like with any news cycle. Yeah. You know, so then what, you know, we, we also talk, um, like met, we could talk mental health a little bit here and say, okay, Absolutely. In your, from, from your perspective, uh, because here's something that I've heard and I, I, I really need to verify the stats. I'm not sure where I'd go to verify them, but something on the lines of the anxiety levels seen in young people today. So I think we could say those under 25 okay. is on par with what was seen in psych ward patients in like the 1950s. Really? 
Wow. So it's it's at unprecedented levels. So we're at unprecedented levels of like emotional and mental health crises, which mm -hmm. could also be part of the reason why. Because you think about what, when we're taking a drug, what are we doing? We're altering our perception of reality. Mm -hmm. Right. I want to escape from the present reality I'm experiencing. Absolutely. Why? That's that's the big question. It's a big question. I mean, um, me myself, I struggled for quite a while with uh, with marijuana. Still dealing mm -hmm. with it myself. And um, when you when you get into a cycle of changing your changing your mindset constantly, um, it gets to a point where you stop realizing what's real. So you know, mm -hmm. having stopped for almost a week now, you know, thoughts start getting clearer. You start settling down and making better better and clearer, well thought out decisions. But that's just marijuana. We're not talking mm. about, you know, cocaine. We're not talking about meth. We're not talking about heroin. We're not talking about things that, that actually remove you from, I guess, real life. Like you turn into, um, I guess a totally different animal in my opinion. Um, mm. maybe not so much cocaine, but, but really heroin, meth, uh, fentanyl, you know, I think stuff. cocaine would make you a bit of an animal while you're high. <laughs> you know, you could see, I, I only say, I only say that I wouldn't mm. include cocaine because it's been around for so long. And a lot of people do have a controlled version of an addiction with it where mm, you don't see too many with, you don't see too many, you know, functional heroin addicts. You don't see too many, uh, functional, uh, right. functional fentanyl addicts. Right. Yeah. 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 Fentanyl, fentanyl is kind of a, a frightening one and car fentanyl. It's, it's cousin is even worse. You know, just like you get yeah. a frat, like a, just a little bit of that powder on your skin and it's going to be potentially fatal. It's that potent. Mm -hmm. um, no, but I did, I did want to keep going on that thing mm. though, because um, I don't think that, I don't think that um, people are, you know, mental health is a big thing now. And a lot of people like to say the words, but mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that once you dive into the weeds with mental health, I don't think that too many people really want to hear it especially when it comes from like a personal side. So once you start okay. splaying out, you know, you, you got some issues. I do have some mental health stuff. Some people really just get turned off by hearing it. Mm. And um, it's what it seems like anyway. So mm. it, it seems to turn off, you know, when someone has a mental health issue and they're not able to talk about it, that exacerbates the problem. Right. And this, here, here's a really interesting thing, because I think mental health gets maybe looked at as though it's a black and white issue. Like you either have mental health issues or you don't. When in fact, it's more like a, a spectrum. I, I would completely agree. And not only is it on a spectrum, it's not, I would say in many cases, and I want to I like choose my words carefully, but I, I'm inclined to say in many cases, it's not a life sentence. In other words, it, you know, uh, and, and I'm speaking from personal experience, having been through trauma, been through mm -hmm. PTSD, mental health struggles through a lot of my thirties, binge eating and food addiction and, and among other things. Yep. And, there were certain points in, in like my lowest points where I was like, I don't know if I can see a way out of this. Yeah. You know, yeah. but here I am, you know, today, like in, you know, better mental and emotional health than I've ever been in my life. Mm -hmm. Point, point of this, of just sharing this, not to make it about me, but to say that, um, mental health is often treated as a black and white issue that's written in stone, that you have this and you are this, and there's no way out of this, except that you maybe find yourself taking a medication. Exactly. Like, there are steps that you can take. And if you care to share, you don't have to, no one ever has to share anything you don't want to, but you mentioned that you have some mental health or you oh, grapple with some mental health issues. You absolutely. Know, um, I'd, what, I'd be what, more than willing to share. Um, yeah. So I was actually, believe it or not, I was actually suicide. I had some suicidal thoughts as a teenager and okay. I, and I bound those up for a long time for a long time. Didn't even tell my parents. And, um, so finally let that out even this year and went to therapy for the first time. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as I start going to therapy, I, I actually, you know, lead on like, Hey, I do not want pills. I, I just do not want them. I want to get help for what's going on with me, but I do not want pills. So, and going in there with that mindset actually helped a lot, you know, cause it gives a groundwork. Well, that's not a solution. So what are our solutions? Mm, and, um, I think going in with that, I, I kind of, you know, worked on myself and throughout that process, I actually had found out, you know, a couple, crazy thing happened to me, had a little issue with the, uh, the policeman down here in uh, Baltimore. And, um, I basically found out that I do have, uh, at least some degree of anxiety. And, mm -hmm. and, um, so they were, uh, when I actually got it diagnosed, they were unwilling to put it on like a, an actual, um, I guess make it an actual anxiety diagnosis. They said, I have, mm -hmm. I have, um, Oh, what did they even say? Like general, like it was like the baseline kind of general anxiety disorder sort of thing or. Yeah. And you know, and looking back on it, when I look back on my teenage years and stuff, that's 
most likely, if not definitely, where those suicidal thoughts came from. You know, just mm-hmm. anxiety, not being able to talk about it. You know, mental health wasn't a huge thing in my family. So mm-hmm. it's hard to, um, you know, articulate that to parents and other family members who just haven't haven't had those thoughts. Right. So we, and you mentioned suicidal thoughts and, and this is yep. not this is not a light thing. And no, it, no, no, that's really heavy. So I hope that I hope people really do take that seriously. That's it's not something to take lightly. And if you do have them, please, you know, go go and try to speak with someone that you feel comfortable with. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, I, I have this thought that that none of us uh, like put up our hand and ask for this. Mm-hmm. And go, I'd like to find myself. So I guess I'm kind of curious about your personal experience. You're, you're in this space as a teenager, you know, seemingly potentially moving into the prime of your life, you know, young, strong, all this mm-hmm. kind of thing. And you have these thoughts, suicidal thoughts, I, I, I'm considering ending my life. Absolutely. And and it, did you find yourself kind of in this divided headspace where part of you goes, no, I want to live. But the other part goes, this seems like a better option. What um, was it like for you? To be honest, it was always, I want to live. And then um, always the thought to, the thoughts that crept in was... Um, I know I have a safe downstairs. I know how to get in. Why don't you just do it? And every time I'd have that thought, I'd have to argue my way out of it, but I'd find a way. Mm. So I guess going into the thought experiment, I wasn't really suicidal. And then that thought would find its way in. And it was basically, I'd say like for a good six to eight months, I was just dealing with that. Like I'd wake up in the morning and I'm like, you know, don't want to go to school. I know what's downstairs. I could just drive my car really fast off a cliff. Doesn't I could pick any option. And then I just, like I said, I'd talk myself down from there. Um, so I guess it's a little different from Mm-mm. how you worded it. Sure. And, and um, <clears throat> you know, so th- these thoughts kind of enter your head, but you, you say you talk yourself down from this because this is something yep. you, you actually don't see as a viable option. Don't see it as but, a viable option. Absolutely. But what's, you know, cause we could say, if I could put it this way, that there's a promise, like suicide offers a promise an escape. Yeah. From what? And right. then, and then you get to put more trauma on your family, mm-hmm. more trauma on all your friends who ask what they could have done, how they could have helped you. Mm-hmm. Everyone thinks that they could have done more. Right. Mm-hmm. What was, so, so in, in your mind, what was the promise? Like this will help you escape from what? Um, I, I don't know. For for me, there were so many things going on as a kid that I didn't really realize, especially, you know, with uh, a lot of stuff with just my family, stuff with, um, I had a lot of, uh, you know, I guess I didn't pick my friends very wisely as a kid either. So um, I really struggled to, you know, fit in and find my niche. And from it, really the things that I was dealing with when I was suicidal was I had basically all of my grandparents died within about a year and a half span. So I had three remaining grandparents going into my eighth grade year and come out of freshman year. I had no grandparents left. Um, it was after that time that the suicidal thoughts started to pop up. Um, and I just, yeah, I, I felt very little will to want to get up in the morning, very little mm, okay. will to actually go and participate in things I liked, like baseball, um, just other sports. Like I, I found very little joy in almost mm. anything. Right. So, so really, the, the grief kind of was robbing you of the, of the joy. The joy. I of think life. so, and I wasn't able to actually process that properly as a young kid. Right, and and actually, and kind of why I'm somewhat curious about this is because I think. Um, cause you grew up, you know, 20 years after right? you're going to high school, 20 years after I did, like, mm-hmm. you know, you were, you were born when I was graduating from high school yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yep. 99. Yeah. I'm like, gee whiz, man. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's mind boggling to think about sometimes. Don't mind if I marvel at myself being 40 sometimes being like, Whoa, where I marvel at myself being 22. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I just think about like, we didn't have conversations like this, but here, my yeah. impression was that like this next generation had more open conversations about this sort of thing. And there was more kind of more acceptance of it as, Hey, this is, this is a realistic issue that people, that people face that we Definitely. don't necessarily want to stigmatize. But, yeah. you know, w- one of the things that, uh, that I see happening actually, um, in the province West, I mean, in, in British Columbia on the West coast of Canada in, in, and particularly in, the, in a couple of the bigger cities is like these young people swarming and filming and beating and like just traumatizing other young people. And it's, and I'm like, where on earth is this coming from? Where did the idea come from? 
that not only do we want to do this, why don't we, you know, 50 on one, humiliate one person, make them kiss their shoes and beat and stomp and kick them and, and, and like brutally injure them Mm -hmm. and then film it and post it everywhere for people to see. And nobody wants to intervene. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a broader issue with our society, to be honest with you, Mr. John. Um, How many videos do you see every day of, of possible interventions that are just caught on film? Don't. I mean, I guess I, see, I don't go looking for it, but I don't go looking for it either. But, um, mm. when you just see people, you know, posting fights or posting, um, you know, uh, somebody starting an altercation where it's obvious that that person is in the wrong, nobody steps up and says anything. It's always, Oh, let's video it. Cause I know something's going to happen. Right. When you, I mean, I may just be <laughs> a crazy person, but in my opinion, when I see something going down that I don't like. I put a stop to it. I either say something and try to end it. Or if that don't work, I get out of there. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to stay there and videotape it and try to get the fame from that. Like, I don't know if that's what it's more like, what people trying to get views. Yeah. Is is there a promise of like, is, is, you know, of social media fame? Cause you know, I grew up without social media. I didn't have Facebook Mm -hmm. until 2008. That would have put me at what? 26 years old. Facebook at 26 years old. So I didn't, I didn't grow up with social media. I avoided it. And the only reason I got Facebook was because my friends had started organizing events and they were using Facebook as a way to, that's a better reason to get it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, back then. And so, you know, this idea, maybe it's the promise of social media, like somehow that social media virality, if I can get that, are people looking for an easier way or seeing it as an Mm. easier way to make a living? If I can get viral, if I can build up this followership, if I can, you know, have this audience that somehow I can maybe make money without having to work too hard. Absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, you ever hear of the PKA podcast? Haven't yet. Okay. So have you ever heard of, uh, FPS Russia? No, I haven't. So he was one of the first famous YouTubers. And, you know, on their, on their podcast, they basically said, um, you know, how many people are trying to follow in our footsteps and just make free money on YouTube, not having to do anything. And I do think that that's a mentality that's held by a lot of young people, not actually producing something of worth, just mm -hmm. getting famous. Right. It's, it's, it's like an interesting spin on addiction. So like we're, we're, Mm -hmm. we're becoming addicted to the dopamine high that social media offers. Absolutely. And it's, this is, of course, this isn't by mistake. Uh, I mean, I work in, in the field of behavioral psychology and, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm yes, there, there's more than meets the eye here. Put it that way. And, you know, I'm just looking at a book I have on my bookshelf up here. And I would recommend that any young person that wants to understand a little bit more about social media have a read of Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. Ooh, that's actually on my reading list. Awesome. Very, very. Yeah. Choosing a focused life in a noisy world. Outstanding book. Um, highly recommend it. I'm not getting a, I should set up an affiliate link, but anyways, Cal Newport has like an email address and that's about it. Um, but reading that really changed my relationship with technology and I run an online business. Mm-hmm. And so I really have to have specific boundaries around my technology use because I use it quite a so lot. So much basically mm-hmm. for your living. Yeah. So I'm thinking about this from a young person's perspective though. You see, like I was at 26 getting close to being fully emotionally mature in, in one sense. Apparently mm-hmm. men hit this at about 28. We reach peak emotional maturity or something. Yep. I, I, well, I, no, not peak. Mo- we just reach emotional maturity. I think peak emotional, emotional maturity. maturity probably comes more like, like I would 60. say more like more like 50 to 60 is when <laughs> yeah. the men finally. Yeah. When they stop thinking about putting babies in the world, that's usually when they start mm. settling down. Think of thinking about other things. But, um, you know, so th- this is coming into young people's lives mm-hmm. um, at a very, very early age where they're not really they don't have the, the emotional capacity or the ability to regulate their emotional environment. And this social media environment is quite possibly contributing to some of this mental health crisis that we see. Absolutely. I, I would completely agree. Um, you're a lot of kids are even getting access to social media, like from the age of like two, three. And when you're sticking an iPad in a kid's face at that age, I, I may I may be making a little bit of an assumption here, but I almost can't see that playing out well. Um, they don't have a good relationship from the beginning. They definitely don't fully understand what what it is that they're actually mm. using. And when you have that many years of compiled <clears throat> misunderstanding, um, I don't see it really going well. Mm. So, you know, th- th- and this this is interesting again to hear from a young person's perspective because I think it used to be Snapchat. I don't know. Maybe I guess TikTok is probably the thing nowadays. Um, uh, tic- TikTok. Yeah. I'm not too much of a fan of it, but it's a fantastic app. It's very good at getting people addicted. 
Right. It, it, it does what it, you know, I, I, I look at it as, as, as Chinese spyware, but then I think the other social media, the other ones are just as bad. They're, they're American spyware. So I'm like, what's the difference? Well, uh, maybe one's a slightly more autocratic regime than, than others, but uh, yeah, either way it's, they're all engineered to, to basically Get you grab. stuck on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then mm-hmm. thinking about social media, one of the topics we said we we're going to touch on was cancel culture. Yeah. And I think that would be a great segue right now. Honestly. Well, I'm, I'm looking again at the hashtag and hashtag Meninist. Oh yeah, uh, which I've never I've never heard that hashtag before. I, now I do see myself as an advocate for positive masculinity, um, mm-hmm. despite I, I feel like I'm still in my infancy of understanding. But I definitely um, I definitely feel like I want to advocate for positive masculinity because we see a lot of um, inauthentic versions of masculinity that actually oh, drives yeah. poor male behavior. Yeah, and you see that playing out on huge scales. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. In terms of uh, what what does Meninist mean to you? Okay, so this is so this is actually hilarious. So the only reason I bought this shirt was there was a Twitter account when I was a sophomore in high school mm-hmm. called Meninist, and they just got famous because they basically posted anything you'd see on a feminist you know page, then post the opposite. So okay. Just whatever. Um, you know, obviously there was obvious jokes like like women back in the kitchen and stuff, like like just trying oh, to, okay. to start fires. But the there was a more serious point. They'd pick on every single post that you know a feminist page would put together, they would knock it down. They'd try to basically explain that no, this isn't there's no way that this is the only way of thinking that can be correct. And uh it basically pissed off so many people that I thought I had to have one. So okay. for me, for me, meninist just stands for the opposite of feminist. And interesting. I only wear the shirt because I find it funny. I don't actually really subscribe to the ideas. I don't even know if it's really a page anymore, to be honest with no, you. Now I'm curious. Like, no, I want to potentially check yeah, it out. I'll actually I mean, look I think- it up for you. But I'm yeah, I'm totally unsure if they're still alive, but I, I would assume that they're kind of dead. Um, right. I, I mean, I can see the potential just in terms of satire. You think about the various satire um, sites that exist, uh, like the onion or the Babylon Bee. I think those are the okay. two that come to it mind. It ran um, right along those lines. It right, ran right, okay. right along those lines. And, and mm-hmm. so just, just like deliberately like annoying people when they're like, Hey, hello, maybe you didn't realize this was satire, <laughs> you know? Um, nailed it. Yeah. And, and comedy and that, comedy is supposed to be that, which again, we, this really brings us back into the idea of cancel culture. And it's like yep. when we start canceling comedy, which comedy was supposed to be the we, lens that allows us to explore difficult social issues. That's what I really wanted to dive into. Yeah. So, um, the big one, so, uh, the big one really for me is, is you go back to Louis CK, but mm. one that's going on right now that I actually just saw, you know, just reading some articles is, um, who's that guy? John Mulaney's catching heat. And so John Mulaney's catching heat just for having Dave Chappelle on his show. And right? I don't know who John Mulaney is, but I assume he's probably more famous than I am. He's, uh, he's a very, I would say very left-wing comic. Okay. Pretty funny. He's yep. got he's got quite a bit of uh, of history. He's got, I believe, some serious addiction issues and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And uh, yeah, but regardless, I don't. Funny people are funny people, and he's a funny yep. one. And he had Dave Chappelle running up on his lineup, and basically everybody just started trying to cancel John Mulaney because he had a transphobe and a homophobe on his stage. And if anybody's seen Dave Chappelle's latest special, it was along the same lines. Uh, what was his latest one called? Is it Sticks and Stones? Or is that, I'm, I'm, like, um, I'm not sure if that, which one it was, uh, whatever one where he basically told the whole monologue story about, uh, the transgender person who ended up killing themselves. Right. That was his friend or something like yeah, that. Absolutely. Right. I don't, and you know, like, I don't even have Netflix. So mm-hmm. like, I haven't watched the one to be, to be right, right, right. frank so, with you. Sorry, but I do Dave know the Chappelle, if you just happen to be tuning into this podcast, oh, yeah. um, Sorry for like not watching it and not really not being able to give an educated opinion on it. Um, but yeah. if you are, if you are listening to this podcast, I, I've made it big. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But so cancel cultures is kind of this interesting thing, this reactivity yeah. to I'm hearing something that I don't like, but I don't have a coherent argument against it. And so I'm going to plug my ears and scream and get every rally, everyone I can around me to try to shout you down and to cut your tongue out instead of challenge the perspective that you hold. Well, you pretty much just gave the best definition of cancel culture I've ever heard. Cool. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to create like a TikTok clip out of that or something. Nice. I do have a TikTok account. I'd have to reinstall it on my phone to, and then upload it and then uninstall it again. Absolutely. Um, that's, that's how I roll with TikTok is I, I, I install just it, get content. Up, upload what I want and then uninstall it again. Yep. Um, well, I had it on my phone for a little bit and then it just kept showing me basically the equivalent of softcore porn. 
And I, and so I was, so I was like, they know how to get those 40 year olds. They know how to get them. So I'll just take a little tangent on that. My dad found YouTube about three years ago and, (laughs) and YouTube had an algorithm to start sending older men, younger girls videos. And he starts, he starts getting suggested videos of very, very young girls dancing very provocatively. And uh, he was like, I, I, you know, I got to stop for a while. Like whatever is going on on here, this isn't right. And Mm -hmm. sure, sure enough, a month or two later, YouTube was getting investigated for that and it started dying down. But yeah, that's a, that's a slippery slope right there, man. Well, well, I asked, I I asked um, Dylan, who is not on here tonight, unfortunately, but if he is tuning in, Hey Dylan, um, I I was asking about this because he's, he's a TikTok influencer and he has, you know, almost 600,000 followers. And I was like, man, it was actually on his recommendation that he finally convinced me to like have a TikTok presence. Try to have one. Right. You know, cause there's some value in it because it is probably of, of all the social media platforms, it's the one to grow an audience, like the, the quickest mm-hmm. right now. Absolutely. And, but I was like, man, like if ever it goes to my feed, it just keeps showing me these videos. Like why, you know, and it's not, it's actually not what I want to look at. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not. I love my wife and I'm faithful to my wife and I have no interest in seeing this. Yeah. And no matter, it seems like no matter how much I swipe away, it just keeps showing it to me. Hey, um, they're so trying to like, get you canceled, John. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, you're trying to, trying to have a negative impact on my marriage or something. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of uh, I think a lot of the social media actually, whether they admit it or not, they do go after that. So Mm -hmm. you know, uh, they're trying to catch your attention. So if they notice you like your your eyes are going to uh, are going to half naked girls, they're going to give you more half naked girls. If they notice that you're you know you're way into the party scene, they're going to give you more party stuff to look at. And um, you really got to know what you're getting yourself into when you're putting yourself on those platforms. Yeah, it was. And it, it was kind of like disconcerting for me in a sense, because I was I didn't ask for this. This isn't what I was looking for. It isn't what I want, but it, it's, it's probably, it's like a, maybe it's a gamble that would, from an algorithm perspective, they look at sort of the demographic. I don't put my actual demographic in for me. I put some, inex, let's just say some in, inexact demographic information into there, but Not based on idea. that, right. They go, okay, we're going to, we're going to start showing you this because what we've seen is when we show this to this demographic, we see people engage with this platform more. And mm-hmm. so I think this is what they were doing is because I, I followed into a certain demographic. They're like, well, if we show men pictures of like women, uh, att- attractive females sort of doing the tick, tick, you know, flash or whatever, change my outfit. And I'm wearing mm-hmm. now the skimpy outfit or something. They seem to watch that. And, and I mean, to me, I think this speaks to a bigger cultural issue. I'm like, man, uh, now, now, now I just feel like I'm old, but I'm like, this is just like a really terrible way to get attention because you're actually, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's like, we're not, we're not, um, we're not holding up women for like being intelligent and capable and doing amazing things. We're just purely appealing to like the most sort of primal and basal instincts that lie within human biology. Yeah. And they're getting famous off it. So it's, it's kind of um, incentivizing the girls to do it. And Mm -hmm. obviously the guys are clicking on it. I mean, like in, in one sense I could say like partially, I don't, I don't blame females in one sense. Right. Because I understand the draw. If you're chasing the bag, you're chasing the bag. I assume that means you're going after money. money. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. One of those, one of those young, young people's expressions. <laughs> I managed to put, put it together, but, it, but I mean, I feel like this is a slippery slope and um, oh, yeah. just, just going back to this, I think originally we were talking about masculinity and I wanted to slip this into the conversation um, because uh, one of the things that I'm really passionate about is um, human trafficking and actually putting a stop Me to too. it. I actually listened to your episode on that. It was um, one of the most eye opening episodes I've ever episodes of any podcast I've ever listened to. Yeah. And so, uh, f- those out there, men fight for me, you know, the role of authentic mm-hmm. masculinity and ending sexual exploitation and trafficking written by, um, Alan Smith and his co-author, Jessica Midkiff, who spent 10 years caught in, uh, human trafficking. And wh- I guess people might wonder, well, what, what is like, you know, soft core porn TikTok videos have to do with human trafficking. And I think it's like, it's a slippery slope. It's an on-ramp is how I see it. It's an on-ramp to desensitizing our brain to seeing and objectifying females in a sexual way, which then, okay, now I want to see more. So where do I go to see more? Well, now I start heading over to uh, porn websites. And over there, you, you know, you just get like a, whatever, a smorgasbord of information on stuff that's, you know, now I'm sounding really like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about, but I mean, you know, yeah. I, I can only guess the kind of stuff you're going to find on there. And then yeah. you see from there, you're going to desensitize your brain further because now again, you're normalizing sort of the degradation and abuse of females. And so then the next step in that is, okay, now I want to live out this fantasy in real life. And that's how you get to this place where we have men that we wouldn't expect, um, you know, sexually exploiting females. 
um, and young females. So, um, anyways, so, so it's this idea, you know, this, this funny, this TikTok slippery slope where, you know, we, we suck people in and, and somehow I've managed to connect the dots to like human trafficking. <laughs> no, but, um, I think it's a huge issue to actually bring up though, cause it's getting, um, it's actually getting to be more and more of an issue here in the, in the U S um, a is. lot of, especially on the border um, mm -hmm. with the amount of, uh, you know, illegal crossings that happen here. A lot of the miners are getting trafficked, getting abused on the way. And it's I not like it's, it's, it's not like it's not getting talked about. It's just that I think it's so plainly obvious that it has to be happening. Nobody really wants to acknowledge it. Um, right. It, it's, it's a really big problem. Um, you have, you know, parents in a, in a lesser country trying to send their children to, to get a better life than them. But what are they sending mm -hmm. them that path that they're sending them on? They don't really, I'm not saying they don't know, but that seems to be, um, not worth it in my opinion to send my child off to get possibly, uh, raped, tortured, abused, maybe not even make it to that country, mm. you know? So, and, and this is an interesting one. Again, I, I feel like I'm not like that well educated on, on like say the border crisis, for example, it's something that we sort of, it's like, a little different. Really... The Canadian U S border is a little more clean. So you probably wouldn't have those issues. Right. Right. But I mean, I guess, I guess my, my very basic understanding is you have people from third world countries, primarily Latin America, Central America, mm -hmm. um, but maybe other countries via this way, all crossing the border in mass numbers um, illegally mm -hmm. uh, in, or in, in sort of search of a better life. But the, the, the concern here, or one of the concerns is that, okay, because I don't, I don't necessarily blame people for saying, I want to get a better life. I've lived in third world countries and I'm like, I don't blame people for wanting to come to say this like, country here. Out. Yep. Right. But the way, the way they're, they're going is they're using, I think they call traffickers coyotes. Is that Coyote. right? I, I was going to say, yeah, I was going to mention that. So they call them coyotes. Mm -hmm. Yep. And okay. So I do know a thing or two. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's, it's what an interesting name because a coyote is like a, uh, what's the word? Not a, well, it's a predator, but uh, you know, well, I guess a predator in a, in a sense. It, and mm -hmm. so they are preying on these vulnerable, desperate people who are trying to escape extreme poverty and get to a place where they can have a better life. And ultimately they're finding themselves, um, in a situation that may be worse than the one they're presently in. But, you know, you mentioned potentially sort of exploitation and whatnot. Is this mm -hmm. something that is, is documented? Is this something that, um, so you say, you say it's like a known, known issue, but is it documented somewhere? Like who's, who's paying attention to this or tracking it? Um, it's, I guess you could say it's pretty documented. I, I get, I just see things, uh, just in, in my, you know, my social media feeds all the time, mm -hmm. but, um, uh, a lot of the, um, I guess you call them Republicans our right wing politicians down here in the States. Um, a lot of them love to go and make a fuss about the border, which I actually okay. am a fan of because if it's a problem, you should make a, a problem out of it. You know, the way that they do it, not too much of a fan of sometimes and stuff, you know, they pull up with pictures, they pull up with, with stuff, but you end up getting these stories because most of these migrants end up getting, you know, get tracked and they get released into the innards of the United States on the decision mm -hmm. of our government, not on, mm -hmm. you know, they end up getting caught usually in some way, shape or form, or they get documented and then they just get released. So, mm -hmm. um, a lot of them, I, I think a lot of things also happen where they don't necessarily want to speak up on what's happened to them. Um, especially if they're younger. Right. Okay. Right. But when you start hearing, um, when you start hearing that people are getting, um, you know, kids aren't, aren't necessarily making it or, or kids are showing up in tattered clothes and looking like they've been beaten, um, on their track. It's hard to, it's hard for me to think that it's, you know, an actual good, good thing that's happening. Sure. Whenever you start herding people like cattle with very cramped and very difficult and very uncomfortable conditions mm -hmm. with extremely limited resources and high risk, mm -hmm. all of this, it brings sort of tensions and emotions high. And then you have like an extreme sort of power differential between those who are trafficking and those who are, are being yeah. trafficked, I guess. And so you, you have to do what we say. And, and if you don't do this, we, because the, the power that we presently hold is that we will turn you over to the authorities and you get sent back to where you come from. So mm -hmm. we are therefore coercing you into doing something potentially. That, yep. I'm just I, like I I have zero sources for that. I'm just literally with my understanding of psychology being like, okay, yeah. this is what I can see potentially happening. But again, I say like that's why I'm curious if 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 there's sort of um, verifiable verifiable documentation of this. Because you mentioned, uh, I'll find guess, some for you, John. I'll send it okay. right over when I find it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because I think it's important to again talk about these things, but I, I think it's also valuable. Like what we've seen a lot of sort of, I guess, could we say like political news cycles essentially mm -hmm. is we're going to take a talking point and we're going to make it as inflammatory as possible yep. uh, against the other side. 
mm-hmm. you know, that's usually the, other the goal. Side, That's why right. I tried to stop watching. <laughs> yeah. The other side is doing this. Well, the, yeah, but the other side is doing this. And then this side is doing this horrible thing and so on. And, and ultimately somewhere in there, like the truth is getting sort of lost in, in the, in the picture. So, okay, well let, let's put you on the spot just a little bit here and ask yep. a question. So there, there is this border crisis. I think it's being referred to as a border crisis. I would love to call it that. Okay. So, and, and we could say the border crisis is a whole bunch of people crossing the border illegally, like, like large volumes of humans crossing the Mm -hmm. border and, and just like sort of melting into society in one sense. I mean, they're obviously going somewhere. I don't, I don't know where they're going. Um, Mm -hmm. They're going somewhere. Um, And then maybe the concern is that they're going to have difficult time integrating into society and uh, still be stuck in poverty or, or what is the concern then with people crossing the border and what might you do differently? Um. I guess just the bigger concern for me is, do you even have a border? What's the point of having a border if you're not going to enforce it? So mm-hmm. the biggest, the biggest thing for me is we don't enforce our border. We, mm-hmm. we, you know, we had a, we, our former president tried to put up a wall and yeah, maybe the wall, maybe the wall wasn't going to stop all the migration or maybe not even a huge chunk of it, but it was the first dedicated effort by a president to lock up our borders or at least sure up our borders in a long time, like a, a genuine tangible thing. And you know, the new president comes in, stops construction, even starts ripping some down. What kind of, you know, what are, what kind of incentive are you giving to the other, to the other countries, right? Mm -hmm. That's pretty much telling them to walk in. Right. And so that you go, okay, well, at at what point do you draw the line? I guess Mm -hmm. is maybe, maybe the unasked question because there's the humanitarian side of things where we could say, maybe we have a degree of social responsibility being in a country that's well off with an abundance of resources Maybe mm-hmm. that's starting to change with like trillions of dollars being printed. But um, hey, I'll uh, I'll just point it right over to yeah. uh, how many stories are you seeing about uh about Ukraine? So they're not going to be able to feed the third world countries now because Ukraine's been supplying so much wheat, so much uh, food to uh, our third world countries. Is, uh, yeah. So th- is that what's being one of the concerns being? Yep. So not only is Europe going to be struggling for food allegedly, but because of the fact that they're going to be having lowered amounts, they're not going to be able to outsource to these third world countries or these lesser nations that are looking for, you know, they're looking for supplements to their own food shortages. Right, right, right. right. So or they basically rely on us, us being us being our, our first world countries. Sure. Yeah. Because we, we produce an abundance of resources and we, mm-hmm. we, uh, of our excess, we export to third world countries and whatnot. And so, Absolutely. um, you know, and I, I feel largely unqualified to speak on the Ukraine crisis. Um, I, I have a few thoughts about it, but I mean, I, I really think, yep. um, it's, it's messier than people. It's, it's very messy. Yeah. Let's put it, that, that, that's what I would put in this case. Um, I've lived in Eastern Europe and I think to try to put a Western, sort of liberal lens on the situation here is a misunderstanding of the culture that, that exists over there. Okay. So no. So the, I actually kind of want to ask you a question, John. Mm, so, by all means. so, you know, we're talking about, about coming out of our surplus and stuff. Can that, I, I feel like it can almost lead into a negative. What do you think? Having basically setting yourself up to be the supplier of a lesser nation. How do you, how do you see that as being, being a negative uh, so, in terms of creating dependence or creating dependence, but also creating a sense of um, necessity for yourself. So now that we're struggling, you know, now that the United States is struggling to, to even keep ourselves afloat, do we really have an obligation to keep other countries afloat? Yeah. And that, and that's an interesting question, right? Because we go like, what, what role do we want this nation to play on the world stage? Mm-hmm. Um, do we want, you know, because I think since world war two, because of the U.S. is sort of geographic isolation compared yep. to, say, Europe or or Asia, in a sense, um, and its abundance of natural resources and just a really really rich landmass, um, it gave it and, and, a, and a strong population base just gave it the opportunity to rise up into being a superpower and ultimately sort of Absolutely. fell, whether deliberately or inadvertently, maybe it's a mixture of both, into being the world police. I think you know that, that's a that's a movie I saw many years ago. Was yeah. It? Team, Team America World Police, I think it was called. Yeah, with the uh, with the puppets. So um, we go, okay, that that's what they sort of fell into. And then we get into the question, okay, well, why did that happen? You know, what's the benefit? Exactly. Well, if we can create dependent countries, we can maintain our status as top dog. Absolutely. Look at that. You're um, looking at it uh, pretty economically. Well, what I, what I see is this. Okay, um, let's just say a West African country grows peanuts. Mm-hmm. And we go, you can only sell us peanuts. 
and we'll take those peanuts and turn it into peanut butter and sell the peanut butter back to you. Mm-hmm. But you can't sell peanut butter. No, because it has to be our peanut butter. Right, because that's the value add. That's the real value add. The labor mm-hmm. is cheap over there, whereas peanuts may, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm just using peanuts as an example. I don't even know how labor intensive they are as a crop. I'm going to guess that they're reasonably labor intensive. So over there, labor is cheap. So we'll get you to do all the cheap stuff and uh, we'll do we'll yep. do the mechanized value add and then bring it back to you. And mm-hmm. so ultimately, you, you're only allowed to get so far economically before we say, you know, that's that's It's enough. like a limiter. It's like setting a limiter. Yep. Right. So if we go, okay, if, th- if this is what you know, the IMF or, or, or the U S or, uh, world bank and these sorts of organizations are doing is really sort of maintaining a certain degree of Western economic dominance, Western referring to sort of Western Europe and, and the U S and yep. maybe to a lesser degree, Canada and Australia. Um, it seems like anything that would upset that system, um, has the potential of upsetting those who hold positions of significant wealth and power. And they're likely to be opposed to that. So, I mean, I don't think I've actually answered your question. I think I'm just kind of dancing around a very roundabout way, but sort of describing, I I think the way you're describing the problem, you're describing the problem really well. What what I do is I look at this through the lens of behavioral psychology and it's not that I'm Mm -hmm. entirely an expert, but I'm, I'm, I do have a background in marketing psychology, which is a branch of behavioral psychology. And I use this in my, in, in my own daily work. And so I try to use that lens to examine human behavior and go, remove the lens of idealism, remove the even maybe even the lens of moralism and go just understanding basic human nature. This is how we function. This mm-hmm. is how um, sort of I expect people to behave. And maybe I'm slightly cynical now that I've lived around the world and and, and seen it. And so um, the question is, should we set up countries as dependent nations? I don't know. I think the idea should be, and this is just me in, in an ideal scenario, we would say, okay, we're going to um, give you this surplus to allow your population to grow into a healthy population. But on top of that, but on top of that, we're going to, um, we're going to support you educating your population, but then that's a slippery slope because now we're talking about culture and we're talking about, you just talked the, took the words out of my mouth. So, but then you get into the issue. Do they actually accept your education? Do they want it? Yeah. And then, and that's, that's like a big question, you know, when I say education, I'm thinking more, we're, we're going to make sure that you, you know, more of the practical stuff. So let's, let's remove the social sciences, not to say they don't have value. They really do. Of course they do. And I did my social sciences friends out there. I'm not trying to offend you. Um, yep. There's my disclaimer. But the reality is it's like what, what we, what we, what we see in terms of a population that, that grow or a nation that like grows and develops and advances is they're making advances technologically. They're making advances in the STEM, uh, you know, the science, the technology, the, in the um, physical sciences. Yeah. And so, you know, it seems ironic that, that our biggest export is culture. Yeah. Not only that, it's, it's a culture that, you know, and I'm, I'm of a more conservative lean. I, I mean, well, in some ways, I guess. Yep. Maybe I'm more culturally conservative, again, because of my understanding of human nature. And um, I, I just don't see degeneracy as being like a positive for like culture as a whole. Thing. Yeah. No, I just, I just don't. You know, un, un, unlimited, unrestricted hedonism I see as problematic because that's the road to addiction. Absolutely. So, which almost brings us back full circle in a sense. Um, that does. So we have we have this issue with the the culture that we have. Um, now it's too bad that Chris isn't on here because Chris is a cultural anthropologist and she would bring a very interesting perspective to this conversation. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Chris, Kyle, um, Dylan, Lamar, Eris, all you guys that are not on the conversation tonight, you should be here and contributing to this darn conversation. Nonetheless, it's been it's been a very good one. It's been no, an interesting. We can get the next one, one, man. Yeah. You can, we can host, you know, you run a podcast called, uh, we, the Patriots. We, the Patriots. Right? Yep. I run yep. the, we, the Patriots podcast. Yep. So, so this is not about being a fan of, of the new England Patriots though. No, this is, this is being a Patriot. The actual, what I believe the true definition of a Patriot, when you look back to the, you know, the, the founding of our country, what it meant to be, it meant to be someone who stood up for what's right, in my opinion. Right. So standing up for what's right. Mm-hmm. What, and, and. So, because I, you know, I, I believe the U.S. was founded on a certain set of ideals. Although when it was founded, it was understood that hey, we haven't got everything figured out. That was that was the hope that the founding fathers set out, or at least okay. it seems to be. Because I think this word "patriot" seems like it's a loaded a loaded term, mm-hmm. and it's a very uh, right leaning term at this moment. Right, but it, which is really interesting because mm-hmm. I've hosted on this podcast an extremely left leaning to the point like communist leaning who, uh, individual who sees himself as a patriot. Fantastic. Right. So he, he says, I love my country, 
but here's, and he has a different lens through, <laughs> through which he interprets, um, mm -hmm. historical events, but he says, I love my country. And because I love my country, um, this is how I see the best way forward for us to really thrive as a country. And he, he has bought into the idea that socialism is the way forward, hmm. um, which is really interesting. That and it's so, interesting to get that perspective. Episode six, Caleb Maupin, if you know, if you want to have a listen. I'm going to hop in there. Oh, yeah, yeah it, it, it was it was a really interesting conversation. And it seems like he's a bit of a controversial figure. I say a bit, you know, maybe he's more than that. I don't know. Um, he, he has some sort of flag on Twitter for uh, being, I don't know, being some sort of, you know, misinformation peddler or something. Hey, but I had a really interesting that conversation. That goes back to cancel culture. It does, actually. Yeah. yeah. And so you believe. So, so do you think that cancel culture. So because the idea free speech is not the idea that we have, let's say, unlimited freedom to say whatever we want without consequence. I believe that's not the definition of free speech. Um, no, no. The definition of free speech really is, um, I mean, free speech should be free speech. I mean, that's how I feel about it. Uh, you, you shouldn't be able to call out for someone's death. You shouldn't be able to, you know, call out for certain violence and stuff, but, uh, you know, hold, hold away from that or, you know, fire in a, in a movie theater, you know, sure, stuff like yeah, that. That's a classic example. But uh, like you go back to that and it's like, well, duh, you know right, what I mean? Right. So other than the, to me, other than the ones that literally say, duh, I, for me, I, man, somebody should have the right to say anything because the best thing for me goes back to the court of public opinion. They're going to trash you if you said something bad enough. But then this brings this, this is cancel culture and mob culture again, which is problematic as well. It so, is, so, but cancel culture, I think comes from the top. When you're talking about cancel culture, it comes from somebody thinking that they actually have control of another person. When you're talking about mob rule, you're talking about many, 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 many people coming together against one. And I do not see that as a good. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about, you know, on the social platform, you know, when you have one person post something and 99% of the platform says it's bad, most likely it's bad. If it's only 40% of the platform that says it's bad and it's the 40% that controls the platform, that's a different, that's a different right, kind right. of thing. Cause my, my understanding of the first amendment is something along the lines of the government can't arrest you for speaking out against it or something along those lines. That's at least one core tenant. Okay. Yeah. So, 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 that's, so that's not a guarantee. Uh, as far as I understand, that's not a constitutional guarantee that you can say whatever you want. Like, um, but I, then, then we get into hate speech and this idea that, um, mm -hmm. Hate you know, speech doesn't exist in my opinion. Okay. Not really. Not really. Okay. I, I'm curious why, why you hold that position. Um, what would you consider hate speech? The only reason I, the only reason I pause and hesitate is of course, because we're streaming live and I'm like, <laughs> I could give you a very specific example of what go, I consider. Go for it. Well, except You're most specific. Except I'm not. Well, why? Why I'm not going to do this because I don't want to get canceled off these platforms. <laughs> uh, what, what I mean is, if I was yep. to give you a literal example of what I see to be hate speech, so mm -hmm. you know, you know, like call it calling uh, somebody out based on like their race, their culture, that sort of thing. Their their human characteristics, where uh, I call for you know their uh, demise. Yeah, again, so, I'm trying trying to choose my words carefully here, but I think yeah. this can go back to so you think about the ACLU when in their in their you know coming up when they started to really uh, be a good movement and this is this the was American Civil Liberties, Civil Union, Liberties right? Association or something like that. Okay, uh, uh, no, which which way do they swing? ACLU? Yep, and they're at this point very left, but okay. th in the beginning they were defending Nazis going in the streets of the United States, proclaiming that Jews were you know the the rot of society. I don't think that that's a good thing to mm -hmm. say, but the lawyers were representing these people to make sure that they had the right to say it. And that point being is that, like I said, you get to the public opinion where if you say something that sounds that bad, most likely they're going to tell you that it's bad and they should. And that's the point of America. The point of America is that we're supposed to be those stand-up citizens. We don't need the government to tell us what's bad. We make those decisions. When somebody crosses a line that you don't you don't cross, you make that known that that line was crossed by yourself. You don't need the police to tell you. You don't need Joe Biden to tell you. N none of that. And that, so but, but I, I think in order for that to work, you have to have an agreed upon like <clears throat> code of values, code of ethics, moral code. Yep. And right now we don't have that. Yeah. And hey, 
you, you should be allowed to criticize someone, right? Mm -hmm. You should always be allowed to criticize someone. When Except you start, me. if you criticize me, I'm going to scream hate speech and try and get you canceled. Good. <laughs> but when you start, <laughs> when you start weeding in, getting into yeah. the weeds, and a lot of people criticize with, you know, um, insults, right? Mm -hmm. To me, that's not really. You're not really criticizing. You're just being a jerk, right? And okay. I just don't think that being a jerk is punishable as a crime. Right. I think that that is something that needs to be solved internally. Like who is involved in the situation. Right. Mm, okay. And if there's, if there's a governing body, so say it's in a school. Okay. Yep. Right. So two kids have an issue and it's in the school. They go to the teachers and they should be able to solve the problem. At um, that level. Yeah. And it just shouldn't have to go to the point where you're ruining someone's life for one thing that they said, like, a lot of times some people really slip up and then they get ca canceled and mm. you know, something's called hate speech when it was taken out of context. Um, right. Right. So I'm not saying that for all hate speech because that's mm -hmm. obviously ridiculous, but that being said, you can really get to a point where you are ending someone's social life just based off of a sentence or two that they said. Right. And so, and, and I, I, don't, I agree that that is not a positive thing because it, it offers no compassion, no understanding, no opportunity for reconciliation, no opportunity for learning. No redemption. No redemption. Right. Yeah. Shawshank Redemption. It's one of my favorite, uh, favorite movies. It's a good um, movie. That's a damn it good is. one. Right. So, so we're giving nobody any, any opportunity for redemption. And ultimately that, that just leads to silos of extremism, I believe. Absolutely. And so, and I think that's kind of what we're, what we're seeing today it's because I, I tend to agree. I'm, I'm pushing back a little bit here to sort of get some clarity around definition. And, um, but for the sake of time, I'm going to say like, I tend to agree that, um, you know, we should, we should really be careful about what we call hate speech, because I feel yeah. like there's a slippery slope where something you said, I disagree with. And because I disagree with it, I'm going to, you know, call it this mm -hmm. label and so on and so forth. Right. So, and then, um, Really, we could we could ask, well, why? How do, how have we gotten to the place where we are kind of so lacking in emotional mental resilience? What are the contributing mm -hmm. factors to getting to this place where somebody can say something hurtful and we actually take it on as hurtful? Because what's really interesting about this is Absolutely. if we know that something isn't true, it doesn't matter. Like exactly, you know, exactly. If, if if somebody says to me like you know, uh, I don't know, you're you're a bigoted Nazi. There you go. Know, That's hate speech. Well, I'm just going to laugh because like, there's no part You're of taking it the right way. Now look at it on the flip side. Right. So you, but I, you call someone a flaming communist and they actually are. Sometimes mm -hmm. they lose it. Right. So if somebody called me a bigoted Nazi because I'm slightly right leaning in my political stance, I would just laugh because mm -hmm. like compassion is one of my central like core. It is like the central core value that I hold uh, alongside integrity. And uh, so I, I have like, there's nothing true about it. So it does not bother me at all. When somebody gets bothered by what someone says about them, when they're genuinely bothered about it, there's an element or a part of them that, uh, that essentially believes that this is, there's an element of truth in this statement and they mm. don't like that there's an element of truth in the statement. It makes them uncomfortable because when we shine a light on something about our own character, that's less than ideal, it really feels uncomfortable. It does. And I think that that is the root of cancel culture. I, right. I think that they, that people in general, when, when it comes to introspectively looking on your faults, on your, on your demons, so to speak, um, it, it's so much about positivity these days that you're just, you almost get yourself into a space where no negativity is allowed. And if you're, if you are currently doing something that's negatively affecting your life, but you assume it to be a positive mm -hmm. and you just continue it on for years and years and years, you know, you look back and like you said, it can lead you down terms of addiction. Like that is the hedonistic, uh, mm. you know, you, you if it feels good, it. why is it hurting me? Um, you know, without going too exactly. far down a rabbit hole, but we could talk cause I'm a former binge eating food addict, I think, and formerly morbidly obese. I do believe I can speak with some degree of authority on this topic, but mm. <clears throat> excuse me, this idea that, um, I should just smash an entire cake on social media eat the entire thing and tell people that it's like self-love and body positivity. And how dare you shame me for doing this? It's like, no, mm -hmm. that's actually a destructive behavior. Mm -hmm. It is not helpful. It is destroying your health. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I actually kind of have a question that's, that's kind of centered mm -hmm. around that. So you finish your thought. No, go, go right ahead. Jump um, in. So are you a fan of fat shaming? Not really. Okay. So 
In, in other words, because I think we should maybe clarify, because I imagine there's a broad spectrum of death that's a even on the that's idea a pretty, of fat shaming. That's a pretty broad definition, but I'll say it. I'll just say fat shaming in the nicest sense. Are you a fan of approaching someone that you have respect for and telling them, hey, I think that it would be in your best interest that you should probably look into maybe losing some weight. See, I wouldn't call that fat shaming at all. But that in in today's society on social media, that is considered fat shaming. Right. So um, the, the, the elephant in the room, which is a great metaphor in this scenario here, but the elephant in the room is obesity is not a healthy metabolic condition. Not at all. There's, there is really, to try to suggest, and, and what I observe is I've never met like a healthy obese influencer in their 40s or 50s. <laughs> nope. Right. So the elephant in the room is, but, but here's the thing, as someone who has been morbidly obese and, and I have to manage my weight, it's a chronic condition for the rest of my life. A lot of people don't realize Absolutely. this, but, but because I've been obese, I have all the fat cells that I had when I was at my heaviest. So they all exist on my body. In other words, I have to manage my eating behaviors differently than somebody who has never been obese mm -hmm. because I can regain weight extremely rapidly all the way up to my former peak weight of like 330 Wherever pounds. you got up to. Yep. Right. So, but this is an, I, I call it like making peace with an uncomfortable biological reality or just making peace with my biological reality. Mm -hmm. I have to make peace with the fact that as a former morbidly obese person, that my weight is something I have to manage for the rest of my life. Now, if, if, mm -hmm. um, and I don't look like a fitness model, um, no, but you don't look bad either. <laughs> well, thank you. I don't look bad for 40 and underslept because I have a kid that doesn't sleep at night. So, um, nailed it, but yeah, but the idea being, um, you know, so if somebody tried to call me out and say, Hey, you know, how are you talking to people about weight loss when you don't look like a fitness model? I'd be like, all right, cool, man. Like you obviously don't get it. I've lost a huge amount of weight and, yep. uh, and so on. But in the same token, uh, the, the inability to have that uncomfortable conversation is a problem. This is why I make compassion a central tenet of the work that I do. So maybe mm -hmm. here's, here's how we could tie this together. So compassion is the ability here in, in my eyes, this isn't exactly a textbook definition of compassion, but here's maybe the, the lens of compassion. So lens of compassion allows us to look at a behavior without judgment. Now you say, well, why do you want to do that? Because the moment judgment enters the picture, we want to hide our behavior because we feel a sense of shame connected to it. Now, if I want to help somebody change their behavior, judging them and trying to shame them will make them hide that behavior and not actually resolve why that behavior is occurring. Mm. So we go, okay. So I, I, let's say I've got, I've got a client and you know, one of the first calls that we hopped on, she has over hundred pounds to lose. So it's a pretty significant uphill battle for her. And uh, we got on the call and the first thing she blurts, so she's like, I have to just say this and get this off my chest. Just before getting on this call, I just ate a fistful of chocolate chips. Now you go, okay, so how do you respond to that? So yeah, I you, could say, you could judge real hard. Right, right. Exactly. I could say, I could have said, that's why you're fat. Where would, where would that have gotten your client? Right. Where would that go? So, so that type of fat shaming, I don't like that. That would be like legitimate fat shaming, right? So I would I go, classify that as being a jerk. Right. Okay. So that's an unhelpful behavior. So instead you go, well, how, how did I approach that situation? I said, huh? I actually chuckled and I said, that's interesting. And I said, that makes sense. And she was yep. like, what do you mean? And I'm like, that behavior makes sense. I don't mean that behavior is good, but it makes sense. I know exactly why you did that. You know, and then mm -hmm. we started to break it down because I had a bit of an understanding about her and her backstory and stuff like that. So I said, let me break yep. it down for you and let me help you understand why you made that choice to do what you did. And, and you've also been there. So you can give her an interesting perspective on that. Mm -hmm. So as we broke it down, we had an uncomfortable conversation. I'm not going to share any more details just for the, the sake of anonymity, Absolutely. but we had an uncomfortable conversation. Now it wasn't, now it was, it was as friendly as this is, but it was uncomfortable because of what we were talking about and what we were uncovering. Mm -hmm. Now, because I did that through the lens of compassion, it allowed us to bring this unhelpful pattern of behavior and coping mechanism into the light and say, this is why this behavior occurs. It's not because you're a bad person. It's not because you're a moral failure. It's not, these are not the reasons why this is occurring. This is occurring because this behavior is meeting a need. Yeah. And there's something unresolved here. Now, so if we bring judgment in, in, in the sense of, of fat shaming in the more extreme sense of the word, from then it's like, well, I want to hide those behaviors. But compassion is not saying don't change your behavior. It's saying first, let's begin, let's understand the behavior. If we understand now, uh, and again, in saying all of this, some people listen and go, well, that's real nice. But, you know, sometimes you need a more dramatic intervention. And I understand that. Sometimes if you this, do. If this client was on the brink of some kind of medical failure, some sort of medical catastrophic emergency, where it's like, you have to make a change now. 
Still, I'm not going to shame them because that's not going to help them change. But, and, you know, and we, we had this conversation about you might not yet be on the brink of a catastrophic medical issue, mm-hmm. but you're going in that direction. But you could get there. Right. Yep. And if you don't want this to happen, we have to make these changes. But it's going to be really difficult to make these changes by yourself. So I'm going to help you and support you in trying to make these changes. And so that's a very different conversation than, uh, you know what? Don't even worry about it. You just had a hard day, you know, uh, mm-hmm. hashtag, whatever. The, just letting like, them go or the, right, or the right. other way you could just start judging mm-hmm. from right. the onset very hard. So, so that's a very kind of middle of the road approach yeah. where, because this is what really helped me. Cause I used to be, I used to hate myself, hate my body, self-loathing, you know, and again, I don't want to really make it about myself. <laughs> I have a separate podcast no, for that. Um, but but the, if we go back to this this idea of fat shaming, we go fat shaming in in the sense of like harsh, uncaring judgment is unhelpful. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can call it that way. Harsh, uncaring judgment is unhelpful if the goal is to help somebody change their behavior. If that's your goal, yep. Right. If your goal is to make you yourself feel better about yourself, then maybe harsh judgment of someone else's behavior will make you feel better about yourself temporarily. But there's no real, you know. You don't yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know how long that temporary lasts because well, I, I heard genuinely like, when you start demeaning other people, it does start to affect your psyche. Right. Uh, something like you don't make your light shine brighter when you snuff out or your candle doesn't shine brighter when you snuff someone else's out. Absolutely. That's, that's a genuine fact. Right. So, um, yeah. So if we bring all the way back to sort of cancel culture, cause we're originally, we started on mental health and opioids and then we got to cancel culture and we've actually covered a lot of ground on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, got four. It, yeah. This has been a very interesting conversation. Um, if you were to, if let's just bring home here from your young perspective, yeah, you know, you still have some valuable life experience and you have some wisdom to offer. So from the perspective of a young person who's battled with certain things and kind of working through them and actively seeking to better yourself, if you were to mm-hmm. offer people, especially young people who might listen to this, a takeaway, um, what would you, what would you want to offer them? Um, my biggest takeaway, it doesn't really matter what we talked about is, is just pay attention, pay attention, really, um, try not to let the world around you take up too much of your attention and try to really, um, I guess, dedicate yourself to something that you think is good. Um, Mm -hmm. when you, when you start to head in a positive direction, the feedback comes pretty quickly. And when you head in a negative direction, the feedback also comes quickly. But the one thing that ties those two together is you have to be paying attention in order to notice what your signals are, what feedback you're getting from who, from what, how it's working, right? Um, I would just hope that young people really take their time, maybe get off social media a little bit, um, try to find themselves centered or or court around something that they genuinely find valuable in their life. Mm. And if you could do that and you could do that and help people get to that point, you're going to find yourself, you know, just steps and steps ahead of people your age. Mm. That's awesome, man. That's great. Great advice from a, from a young person. So you've got, you've got a really solid perspective on life. Appreciate you taking the time to be on the show tonight, man. Thank you so much for having me, John. Thank you so much for tuning into It's Not So Black and White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, or leave a review because that helps this podcast to reach more people. It's fascinating to explore the thoughts and minds of those who see the world differently. We don't have to agree on everything in order to engage in civil discourse. So I hope this podcast inspires you to have an open mind and a willingness to see things from another perspective. In this, we can create a hopeful future moving forward. Whatever your belief system, Go and investigate it, like really dig down into it. And you, o- you can only benefit from really thinking deeply about why you believe something.